Well, good morning again. All right, let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather together in our need to come before you and to be exposed by the light of Christ so we could see you more clearly and see ourselves more clearly. We pray, Father, that you would not harden our hearts now, but that the scales would fall from our eyes, that we would be open and humble and teachable. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us abundantly this morning. We thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for the rest that you give us in Christ. And we pray that we would experience that deep rest today. In Jesus' name we, we pray, amen. So this week we, we're going to end where we began four weeks ago. Discipleship is so often explained as a list of religious activities, spiritual exercises, and processes that are centered on man. Right? Let's think about what we've covered. You have to study Christ. You have to follow Christ. You must mortify your sin. And this is the things we've been talking about. Discipleship is often explained as what we are doing, and very rarely explained as what God is doing. And so to make sure that we don't lose sight of that, to make sure that we keep thinking about that. Now, the fourth sermon in this, right, the sort of halfway mark almost, is going to be about the same subject. You can mortify sin. You can study Christ. You can imitate him. But what is he doing? What is he doing while you're doing all of that? Because I don't know about you, but I've noticed something odd about this whole process. He says to go and do all these things. So I go and try to do all these things. And I'm terrible at doing all these things. I can't do these things. Uh, And sometimes I think I can, and frankly, that's even worse than thinking I can't do them. So we fail. We all fail. We all fail all the time. I know this is really, here we go. This is going to be another bummer sermon. It gets good at the end. But we fail a lot. I think most of us are capable of a great deal more failure than we even realize. Um, there are some areas in your life right now, as I covered last week, you're failing, you don't even know, right? You don't even go in that backyard. Who knows what's going on back there? We fail, and that's a reality that we have to deal with. But is that the last thing that is to, to be said about it? We fail, and then we just move on. Well, that's never the last thing to be said about it, right? What we are doing or not doing is never the last thing to be said about the process of discipleship, okay? And again, discipleship is the process by which the triune God remakes us into images of himself, it's a restoration of what we lost at the fall and a bestowal of his essence upon us. Okay? He's leading us, and where he's leading us is heaven, where we will be like him. It's a process in which he remakes us into miniatures of himself. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, I want to talk a lot about this verse today without talking about this verse today, because this is not a spiritual truth. Beholding the face of God by degrees carries us down the road to Christ-likeness. It really does. And that's what I want us to understand today. Christ pulls back the veil so that beholding him, keeping him front and center, we are transformed by beholding him one degree at a time. Now, isn't that comforting? He doesn't just take us all the way to the end. He goes by degrees, sometimes very small, sometimes very big. But it's clearly a process that he has. Okay? It's clearly a journey that we are on. God came in the likeness of the image of man to remake man in the image and likeness of God. Okay, the last piece of the puzzle is how even our failures, all of our failures, so many of them, are the means for Jesus to remake us. Okay, have you ever surprised yourself with how badly you are capable of failing as a Christian? 
what you're capable of saying, what you're capable of doing, what you're capable of thinking. Have you ever surprised yourself with moral failure, your disbelief? Okay? You've, never fi- you've never surprised Jesus. It's never been a surprise to him. We let our failures defeat us, though, don't we? Not only do we fail, we then follow up the failure with more failure by making that like the whole world. Oh, look what I did. We let the sin distance ourselves from God instead of running back to him like Peter does in what we read earlier this morning, right? What does he do? He doesn't even wait. He just leaps into the sea and swims over 100 yards with a cloak on, like he put his robe back on to swim. That's how excited he is to get back to Jesus after his failure. And what is it about that experience that he experienced that we miss? Because I don't know about you, but when I fail, the last thing I want to do is go running to Jesus usually, right? I want to hide or I just want to pretend like it didn't happen, or I justify all these things. It is profoundly comforting to know that Christ uses our successes as much as our failures to shape us into image bearers of himself. Your falls and moral failures don't defeat his plan, because his plan is bigger, and he's bigger than what you are doing or not doing. He is so good, he has so much goodness inherently in himself, that he can make something good come out of your bad. Right? Look at the cross. Perfect example. But it goes beyond that. Okay? That's a huge event. We all get that. But in your everyday failures, in your everyday bad, his goodness is so good that he overcomes that and makes it good. Okay? And that's what we need to understand. I don't know about you, but this is the message that I'm going to listen to again next week and the next week after that because this is news that I need. You can't defeat his plan. You can't overcome his goodness with your badness. Okay? His goodness overcomes yours. We have a great deal of misplaced confidence in our moral faithfulness, our strength, our integrity, and our spiritual well-being. We don't know ourselves as we think we do. We don't know Jesus as well as we think we do. We are all, all of us, to a certain extent and in certain areas of our lives, blind, utterly blind. It's self-inflicted blindness, resulting from hardness of heart, misplaced disappointment, self-will, self-pleasing, tawdry living. Okay? This is what blinds us all. Our problem is we believe ourselves capable of so much more than we are, and we believe Christ is far less capable than he is. We think too much of ourselves and too little of him. Okay, this is at the heart of a great deal of our failure, our great deal, a great deal of our failure to accept who he is and what we are. We're blind to it. We think, well, of course he saved me. I'm awesome. Of course he gave me this wife. I can totally handle it. Right? We think we're capable of a lot. Because he gives us a lot to do. He gives us a lot to be grateful for. And we think, therefore, right, that we deserve those things. That those are things we can handle. Okay, We're, we don't know ourselves. and We don't know him. The Lord has provided a story in the Gospels that explains the process of discipleship perfectly. Jesus plots out a story, a very short narrative, amidst the grander narrative of the Gospel, at the end of his earthly ministry, whose main character is Peter. I find this fascinating. Okay? There's the Last Supper, the arrest of Jesus, uh, Black Friday, resurrection. You have all these things. And in the midst of this bigger story, there's this little tiny story in where he takes Peter and moves him from one degree of glory to another. And the reason he's included the story is because it makes the whole thing more approachable for us. Okay, Peter is the second most mentioned person in the Gospels. There's Jesus and Peter. He's extremely important. And the reason he's important isn't like what the Romans say where he is the pope, right? the first pope or some nonsense like that. It's because we need a character in there that we can approach. We are Peter so often in our own lives. 
And here, this story that I'm going to talk about today is a story that is a story for all of us. And Peter was the main character, unfortunately, unfortunately on one level, and, and that's difficult to be the main character in a story like this, but he is there to help us understand these things. Okay? And this is the point. As Calvin wrote in his Institutes, man never rises at a true self-knowledge before he has looked into the face of God and then come away to look at himself. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just and upright, wise and holy, until we are convinced by clear proof of our injustice and deviousness, stupidity and impurity. However, we are never convinced of this if we simply look to ourselves and not the Lord as well, since he is the only yardstick for which this conviction can come. Right? He goes on to say, Calvin very helpfully, if you're only ever looking down at the ground, right? if you're just looking at the ground, everything seems clear and in focus, you can judge everything. But then if you look up at the sun for a while and then you look back down at the ground, what happens? Right? You can't see as clearly. You're almost, you're, 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 your perspective is off. And, and this is what happens. We think we can see very clearly. right? We, we, we think that measuring ourselves against every other person, therefore every, we're fine. I don't know about you, but I can convince myself that I'm doing really well by simply comparing myself to another person. The whole thing comes crumbling down, though, when I compare myself to God. And that's what Peter has provided here. A moment to look into the face of God, to, to behold God, and then behold himself, he actually sees what his blindness. He sees that he did not know himself like he thought he did. And he didn't know Jesus like he thought he did. Jesus knows exactly where Peter is at spiritually, and so he leads Peter into a crisis. Okay? Now, this is a little bit difficult to understand, but Christ leads us into these crises. He wants the crisis. Because if you're going along your merry way and you don't know yourself and you don't know him and there's never a conflict between the reality and your self-perception, that's a problem. And so he doesn't bring you into crisis because he's just up in heaven. He's like, yeah, I'm going to give him a hard time. Let's do it. Let's poke him with a stick, see what happens. No, right? He sees you. He knows. He's like, no, no. They're confused. And what I need to do is bring them into this moment where they see themselves clearly and they see me clearly. Okay, you need this crisis. And if, if you stop and think about your life, it's full of these crises. Okay? This is happening to us all the time. So let's look at the story. Let's go back. Okay? The story is broken down into parts. It's sort of spread out over the back half of Luke and the back half of John. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth between the two. But like all good storytellers, okay, Jesus comes right out and he has like a preface. He's like, here's the story I'm going to tell. And it's found in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, this is the story in, in sort of two verses. A few things to note about this, though. Jesus uses, uses Peter's pre-Christian name. Okay, he's been calling him Peter for a long time, but now suddenly he's calling him Simon, which is what he called him before he, he converted him, which is interesting. It's a little foreshadowing. Peter is going to revert back to some old, old way of thinking, right? We're supposed to put to death the old man. Simon hasn't quite put to death the old man. A second thing is he says Simon's name twice, which is a Jewish rhetorical device signifying sorrow. Like when Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in Matthew 23, 37. So Jesus is telling him this, and Jesus isn't happy about it. Okay? Jesus is not the great physician working on lab rats, where he's just sort of like, let's see what happens. 
Okay? He, he's sorrowful even telling Peter that, he, that, that this is going to happen. He's sorry about it. But he knows it's what he needs. He's like a good doctor, right? I've gotten bad news from, from good doctors, and this is what it's like. You can tell. They don't want to tell me, but they have to tell me because it's the only way that I'm going to get any better. Also, okay, in this Luke 22, 31 to 32, when he says, uh, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It's a plural you. Satan desires to sift all of his disciples, not just Peter. Okay? Now, let's back up and look at something even more profound about this. Satan asks permission. That's fascinating. I thought Satan was equal to God, just the bad version, like yin and yang. No. Satan is Jesus' lapdog. Okay? He's his gopher. He does what Jesus says. Satan is not out there running around doing his own thing. He approaches Jesus and asks permission to go after Peter and the other disciples. Okay? Nothing that happens to you is random, and there are no impersonal forces. Okay? Now, it's fascinating that Satan has to ask, but it's also fascinating that Jesus grants him permission. Okay? That alone should give us a great deal to think about. And as I've said, that, that's difficult to understand. Why would a good God let bad things happen to us? What is the point of sifting? Okay? What is sifting? Sifting wheat means to shake it violently so that the chaff flows away in the wind and the wheat remains. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this process where you literally pick it up and you shake it. Okay? Or you take a fork and you throw it in the air. Fork. What are those things called, Justin? Pitchfork. There you go, brother. A little farming for you there. Okay? You go in there and you take, and you take the pitchfork and you scoop it, and you throw it in the air, and what happens is the wheat falls back down on the ground, and the light stuff floats away on the air. So think about that for a moment. That's amazing to have a bunch of wheat at the end, but would you like to be the wheat being thrown around, sifted? That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good at all. And Jesus says, don't worry, Peter. Don't worry. He's asked to do it, and I've allowed him to do it, but I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm mediating this for you. Your faith isn't going to fail no matter how hard he shakes it because I am praying to the Father on your behalf. Okay? So whatever you're going through, okay, cancer has asked to sift you. Okay? The election has asked to sift all of us. Right? And Jesus was like, okay, seems good. Right? If you just think of Hillary and Chump as two forks, it was like the two prongs on a fork throwing us all in the air. Okay? Infertility has asked to sift us. Doubt has asked to sift us. The election has asked, asked to sift us. And God grants them the opportunity to show us our weakness and his strength. Okay? Because when the whole world is shaking, when the whole world is going topsy-turvy, you hold on to the only thing that doesn't move. And that's the point. That's what Peter needs to learn. He can sift away, but I'm praying for you and you're going to hang in there. And when you return, which means repent, turn back, Jesus says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. So everything that proceeds from here, Jesus is out ahead of it by 5,000 miles. This is what's going to happen. And when you come back, go forth because I have bigger plans for you. You need to go through this heart surgery. And when you're done, you're going to run a marathon because that's what I've called you to do. Peter is going to be sifted and he's going to survive and he's going to do great things. But, that, but knowing it doesn't prevent him from going there, right? Jesus tells him this, and like so many other things, Peter just sort of keeps going. He doesn't stop and think, whoa, 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 whoa. Hmm. I wonder what he means. 
Maybe I should ask some follow-up questions. Maybe I should avoid that because that sounds bad. And this is us, isn't it? We read in the scriptures that the world will hate us. We read that we're going to endure persecutions. We're going to endure difficulties and sorrows, right? Jesus was perfected through sorrow, through trials and tribulations, and then we're shocked when they happen. We are so like Peter, it's ridiculous. God says this is what's going to happen, and it doesn't prevent Peter from going through it. He knows it's going to, he's going to go through it, and he just goes along anyway. Okay? And then what, later, he's a little surprised that it happens. And we are just like that. We aren't always listening as carefully as we ought to. Okay? This is, the, this is key here. Nothing that happens to you is random. Nothing. Jesus is praying for you and mediating for you while you endure what has, he has given access to you under his watchful eye. Okay? It's just like Job. This is like Job in miniature here. Jesus the Messiah is wise beyond measure, and Peter is getting to experience that wisdom and that blessing. That's what's happening. So this is the plan. You're going to be sifted, and I'm going to pray for you, and you're going to make it. This is the plan. And why is Jesus doing this? Okay. What is the point? To address Peter's blindness. That's ultimately what this is all about. Peter doesn't get it. Peter has a false view of himself and a false view of God, and he's going to come and he's going to get shaken all topsy-turvy until his eyes work right. The story begins in the middle of what is called the Upper Room Discourse, the final lecture of Rabbi Jesus to his disciples. It's that whole section at the end of John from like 13 till his arrest. 13 through 18, I think it is. It's a huge section. Okay? It includes the Last Supper. It includes the High Priestly Prayer. It includes several sermons. It includes the Last Supper. It includes a lot, this, this final Upper Room Discourse, they call it. But let's get into this for a second. This is at John chapter 13 is where I'm going to be talking now. John chapter 13. Okay, how are they all feeling? Here they all are in this upper room. Okay, they have this exchange now where Peter is going to find out that he's going to fall. Well, they're not feeling very good. Jesus isn't feeling great, and the disciples aren't feeling great. John 13, 21 says Jesus himself is troubled in his spirit and says to his disciples in 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling them that because they're clearly troubled. Jesus states in John 13, 18, that one will raise his heel against Jesus, echoing the messianic promise of climactic battle between the promised son and Satan in Genesis 3:15. Someone's going to raise their heel towards him. He goes on to say in John 13, 13 21, that he's leaving. Okay? I'm going to be attacked and then I'm leaving. And nobody understands where he's going. Where are you going? How long are you going to be gone? When are you coming back? Everyone is very, very, very upset. Jesus is... is and this, at this point, being very prophetic, he's being very mystical, he's being very poetic. They don't quite understand what he's saying, but they know something bad is coming. And he's not exactly comforting them. He's not making it crystal clear. Right? The future's a little murky. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Peter, in the midst of his brother disciples, does not understand what Jesus is saying or what he's doing, and this is very common. Right? This is Peter. He never understands what's going on. Peter clearly knows the Lord, but Peter clearly doesn't understand him. And this is a common thread throughout all the Gospels. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that the Messiah has to die. Remember that fun, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He doesn't understand what's going on. Peter does not understand the nature of Jesus' kingship, the nature of the kingdom, or his own place in the plan. Okay? He just is so confused. He has a lot of misguided ideas. He's always a little confused and always a little brash. 
slow to comprehend but quick to act. This is one of, this, just to give you a little picture about Peter. Jesus is going around washing the feet. Jesus says, far be it from you to ever wash my feet. That's so beneath you, that's ridiculous. Jesus says, well, if you don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. So Peter says, okay, well, wash my whole body then. Um, how about just your feet? Your feet's enough. <laughs> right? So that happens just before this. this is, and then, I love it. It's Peter for you. He just doesn't get at all what's going on. He's so confused. Um, and he, he's always responding this way. Peter's greatest aspiration, I believe, is to be a field marshal commanding troops. I believe it. He wants to get out. He wants the front lines. Let's go to war against the Romans. Let's do this thing. Right? Why is he wearing a sword? It's very strange. People going around feeding, healing. Right? He's carrying, he wants to be the field marshal. He's ready to do it. I'm his personal bodyguard. I'm going to lead the troops in the field. And he's a man of his time. Okay? I think I've covered this a lot in other, in other sermons. Hans Baer put it very concisely, and I'll just read this. Despite their religious upbringing, the disciples persist in self-dependence for both their day-to-day lives as well as their understanding of God and his will. The disciples come to Jesus with fixed religious ideas, which are a selective sample from the Old Testament as taught by Pharisaic synagogue, synagogue teachers, which they all had during the disciples' early adolescence. Jesus does not only teach a defined curriculum, but intends to reshape their thinking and heart attitude toward themselves and God thus affecting every aspect of their lives. Peter, you want to be a field marshal? I'll let you be a field marshal. But my kind of field marshal, okay? You've got to learn that the sword isn't the way. You have to understand that what you've learned about the Messiah is wrong. I'm not the Jesus you think I am. You're not the Peter you think you are. And so now what you're going to do is enter into this crisis where it's all revealed to you. Jesus, or Peter has very misguided expectations, and he does not like the way that Jesus is doing things. He doesn't like the way... Um, he's leading the, the disciples. He doesn't like the way that he's being a king. He doesn't like the way that he's being a pro- the prophet of God. He's totally befuddled in his mind, and you see it here. Okay, After everything that's been said, their whole earthly ministry for three years, they're in this upper room, and Jesus is talking, and they still don't get it. They have no idea what's coming. And, and Peter says this in John thirteen thirty six, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Okay? He has no more clue now than he ever did about what Jesus is planning to do. Jesus says, yes, you will follow me, okay? but not yet. There's something in the way. This is what his answer means. You will follow me, but not yet. It's like when he told the rich young ruler all he needed to do was sell everything, and then he'd be ready to follow Jesus. Something stood in the rich young ruler's way, and until he dealt with that, He wasn't ready to follow. For Peter, leaving the fishing boats and the nets was just the beginning of following Jesus. In a certain sense, it was really easy for him. He just got up and followed. Okay? But he hasn't arrived at the end of his journey yet. There are still things he needs to lay down. There are still things he needs to give up. Peter thinks he's ready for martyrdom, the final test of his whole life. But what he later learns is that he's only at the final review session of the semester. Okay, there's a lot of life left to go. There's a lot of dying left to do, Peter. Peter has left everything else behind, and now the question is, will he also leave himself behind? Okay, this is why I think he is such a helpful character for all of us. Here we all are. Right? We said, yes, we will follow. But what we see in the life of a disciple is that it's never just cut and dried like that. 
instead of like, okay, well, I completely left everything behind, and now that's all behind me, and it's nothing but blue skies and sunshine for the rest of my life. It's like last week when I was talking about compartmentalizing our lives. Okay, there's, a, there's an element here, right? He's given up his house. He's given up his job. He's following Jesus around. He's poor like Jesus is. He teaches like Jesus does. He listens. He's doing all these things, but he still wants to control the story. This is why he chops a person's ear off when Jesus is, almost, is being arrested. He doesn't like the direction it's going. He's got to lay it down if he's going to follow. Jesus says, yes, Peter, you will follow me, but there's some dying to do first. And so Peter asked a very hard question. This is also why I like Peter. He doesn't hide from the hard questions. Okay? He's, he's very confused. He's very confused. And he wants to know. He's going to ask the tough one. John thirteen thirty seven. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? That's a very straightforward question. Most of us do not pray in such a straightforward way. Okay? Why am I losing my temper all the time, God? Why am I addicted to pornography, God? What is it in my heart that's preventing me from following you all the way? We don't ask that question, do we? Because we don't want to hear the answer. He asks it, though. This is why, in one sense, Peter is such a phenomenal example to follow. Why can't I follow you? Tell me. I don't want it to be hidden from me. Tell me. And then he, he follows it up very quickly with a bold prediction. And this is how we pray. Okay? I'll lay my life down for you. That's what he says in John thirteen thirty seven. Jesus, why can't I follow you? I'll lay my life down for you. So he asked this brilliant question, but because he's Peter, he has to ask, add this unbelievable assertion here. I'm going to die for you, Jesus. Peter thinks he's ready to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. Peter is trying to be the savior, to control the story, to manage the outcomes. Peter doesn't know himself. He has no idea right now in this moment how absurd this statement is. He has no idea how much failure he's capable of. <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of ridiculous when you think about it. I will die for you. Okay, okay. Sounds good. That's bold. I like that. How about actually, I die for you? Right? He's got the gospel backwards. Nobody is going to go out and do any dying for Jesus until Jesus dies for them. It's, it's very simple. Peter, you've got it backwards. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. There is still so much in your way until I, Jesus, go and deal with it. Once I've dealt with it, then you can follow along and lay your life down for me. Right? You will, but not yet. Peter is so confident. He thinks he's so ready for a bigger role in, in, in the big goings-on in Jesus' life. He wants to do big things for Jesus. Peter says, my life for yours. I'll sacrifice myself to fulfill my plans. Ooh, there's the rub. For your kingdom. Right? He's not taking orders. He's giving them. He's not asking what's really going to happen. He's telling him what's going to happen. I'm going to die for you, Jesus. Because he loves his kingdom that much. He thinks he's the martyr. He thinks he's going to save Jesus. And it sounds noble. It sounds holy. It sounds very pious to me. Doesn't it? Peter can't die for Jesus until Jesus dies for Peter. And you can't die for Jesus in any area of your life until Jesus dies for you in that area. That's the exchange. You can't follow Jesus in every area of your life until Jesus dies for you in every area of your life. This extends last week's sermon. 
We retain control and autonomy over certain areas of our lives, and, in ex- and until the exchange of Jesus' life for ours extends into that area, there are roadblocks to following Jesus. I'm going to keep this over here. You're not welcome. You're not going to die for this. This is my sin. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to keep doing it as long as I want. And until we bring that to Christ, until his grace covers it, until his blood cleanses it, it's an area of our lives that is a roadblock to following him. Okay? We compartmentalize. And what he does is he lets our idols, who we've set up as gods of these compartments, shake them so violently that everything comes falling out and we can see what's in there. Everything was in there except Jesus. That area of my life had nothing to do with Jesus. And so this is the question. This is where it gets really difficult for us. Is Jesus the Lord of your family? Amen. Is he also the Lord of your business? Is he the Lord of your budget and your dinner plate? We are masters at submitting one area of our lives to Jesus and calling it everything. Okay? Is Jesus the Lord of your Netflix queue as well as your devotional life? I'm sure most of us would pick wonderful devotionals. How are we doing at picking things on Netflix? I mean, that's a really simple thing, but a lot of us should do a lot, a lot of repenting of what we watch on Netflix, I think. Is he the Lord of everything? Right? You have to let him shake you in that area, work everything loose, until, right, and let the exchange happen. I'm going to bring this area under his authority. He's going to die for me in it, and then I am going to go and die for him. That's what Peter doesn't understand. Discipleship is the process by which Jesus systematically allows our idols to sift us in every area of our life until we submit them and exchange his life for ours. So Peter asks a hard question and gets a hard answer. Okay? He's not really ready for this answer, but it comes anyway. John 13, 38, Jesus answered right there in front of everybody, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And everyone in the room sucks the wind out of it. There's Peter. He's clearly the number one. He walked on water. Nobody is as intense as Peter. Nobody follows Jesus as much as Peter. Nobody gets in Jesus' face like Peter does. Right? He's clearly his right-hand man. He's not the disciple he loves, but he's the disciple that is in the mix all the time. And if that guy can't stand, who can stand? Right? And who wants to be the guy called out like that in front of everybody? I, you know, right? I just said I'm going to die for you, and you're telling me that I'm going to run as far away from you as possible. So he's already got to die before he ever gets to the part where he actually denies Jesus. Peter has to struggle with what he's really capable of. That's, a par- that's partially why he's so ready to fight at Jesus' arrest. He's ready to prove what Jesus said wrong. I am going to die for you. Watch. All these men are here. I'm going to pull out my sword, and I'm going to start attacking them, and who knows what's going to happen. I'll probably die. I'm going to be a martyr right here. Right? I mean, think about it. Nobody else pulls out a sword. There's a bunch of armed men with clubs. What do you think is going to happen to Peter? He's going to die. He's trying to fulfill his, own, his prophecy. But what he doesn't realize is he's still resisting. He's still putting what Jesus said away. I don't believe that. Look, I'm going to show you. Right? And it comes to nothing. Jesus takes the ear, puts it back on the guy, and, they, and, and he rebukes him, and then he goes with them. Why is Jesus not resisting like I'm resisting? What is the matter with him? 
And this is what Peter has to struggle with. And it's all topsy-turvy now. This is the first big throw in the air. Because we go on from here. Okay? This is a big blow. He's shamed in front of everybody. He attempts to fulfill his own prophecy. It doesn't work. And then later, we read in Luke chapter 22, verses 59 through 62. And this is the mo- one of the most gracious moments that God ever has with Peter. It says this. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. How did Jesus know to turn right at that moment and look him right in the face, right as he's doing the thing he said Peter was going to do? This is the climax of this mini-narrative. Right there in the midst of his failure is the Lord. And and you see very clearly, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Peter looks into the face of Christ by seeing Jesus unveiled. Peter sees himself unveiled. Jesus looks him right in the eye at the moment Peter proves his worth. Behold Jesus, the faithful man, who knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And behold Peter, the self-righteous blackguard. Peter, the turncoat. Peter, the boaster. Peter, the unfaithful. And Peter is cut to the quick. It breaks his heart. He's utterly crushed. By seeing Jesus fully, he sees himself fully and is utterly undone. Seeing what and who he really is in the face of Christ. Has this ever happened to you? Okay, this is what this whole thing is about. Because Peter is there physically with Jesus, and I've covered this. We don't have Jesus physically around. But how many times have you been sitting there and in the midst of the sin, right there in the instant that it happens, the Spirit comes upon you with conviction, and it's like the Lord himself looks you in the face. Now, that doesn't always happen quite that way. Sometimes we go away and we pick up a Bible and we read even just a few words or a few verses and and it totally and utterly exposes us like we're looking him in the face. Okay, this is what discipleship works. This is how it works with failure. He doesn't run away from the failure. He doesn't. He doesn't avoid it. It's not like, oh man, I failed and this whole thing is over. He's waiting there for you because that's what he's going to use to make you by degrees like himself. And as was read for us today, the resurrected Lord appears on the shore where Peter is fishing. John 21, 7 through 8, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. Peter, who wanted to get as far away from the prisoner Jesus as he could, was willing to call a curse down upon himself, swearing he did not know Jesus. 
now can't wait to embrace his risen Lord? Was his failure, was Peter's failure the end of the story? That wasn't the end of the story. Jesus has followed to where Peter is, and he's willing to bring him back. Okay? So even if in that moment you miss the glance from God that exposes everything, he's not done. And it's not just you. We, we just give up on people too easily. He's never done with us. He's not. Peter wanted to get as far away as possible. And now he wants to get as close as possible. Peter's heart is overflowing with love. This was the point all along. Peter loved things, and he couldn't put them down. He couldn't get over them. He wasn't listening. He refused to believe. He refused to obey. Now, because he sees what he really is, he comes to Christ, and his heart is overflowing for love, with love for Christ. So Jesus restores him. Peter denies Christ three times, so Jesus asks him, do you love me three times? And totally reverses this whole thing. Discipleship is about what Jesus is doing to us, not what we're doing for him. The first time Jesus asks is John 21, 15. Do you love me more than those, or more than these? So Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Well, what are these? Is it the fishing boat and the net? That's what some people think. Or is it these other disciples? And this is also a little tricky, this portion. Love me more than these. These what? I believe it is the other disciples. Okay? Besides Judas Iscariot, the most backstabby disciple that he's got is Peter. Right? All the other disciples just run away. Peter denies knowing him utterly. And he's forgiven for that sin. He's forgiven. And those who are forgiven much love much. And so Peter at this moment is full of more love than everybody else because he realizes how much worse he is. And that gives me a great deal of hope. It should give us all a great deal of hope. The more you're forgiven, the more you love. This whole thing was to draw Peter into a... He sifted like wheat. He's cut to the quick. He's exposed utterly in front of all of his friends, in front of the Lord himself, in front of himself. And the whole point was to draw him into a deeper love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And fascinatingly, the third time Jesus asked Peter, Peter reveals how far this experience has taken him. We see the degrees. We're being moved from degree to degree to degree. Here, this is what he says. This is fascinating. John 21, 17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter has learned his lesson. Peter has moved by degrees toward Christ-likeness. Peter appeals to the Lord himself to bear witness of his love. Peter will not boast in what he is or what he is capable of at this moment. Truly, Jesus knows all things. He gets it now. You know me better than I do. I didn't know you at all. And so don't ask me, Jesus, if I love you because you're God. You testify to the fact that I love you. And Jesus does by sending him out to serve others. Peter admits he does not know his own heart as much as Jesus does. He appeals to Jesus' lordship and omniscience. Peter is greatly humbled and admits he doesn't know himself, but knows Jesus is God who is all-knowing. 
That's a transformation right there, isn't it? He's in the upper room. He's totally baffled by what's going on. He's making bold assertions about what he is going to do. To here, he says, listen, don't even ask me, Jesus. Why are you even asking me? You know everything. That's a humbled man right there. Okay? And this is what our failures are supposed to do is change us. And if we avoid this whole process, if we run away from our sin, if we run away from repentance, if we run away from the Lord, if we run away from fellowship and hide in the dark, okay, and compartmentalize our, our sin, and we don't let the sifting happen, we resist all of that, what we do is we get further away from the Lord, not closer. Okay? It's so difficult to, to realize that Christ is not undone by these things, that he's not finished with us. How many, I, I know how all of you feel, right? I, I don't, when I sin against a person, I want to be away from that person, okay? And it takes everything I got to go to them. Sometimes I don't at all, okay? We want to run away, but he, he doesn't want us to. He's not shocked by it. He's not undone by it. He, it's not, right? He's like the Indian who uses the whole buffalo, okay? There's no waste. Your life, there is no waste, and on the last day, when everything is revealed, what you're going to see is that he was moving you by degrees and has, in the end, accomplished his purpose, which was to make you a miniature of himself. That's the plan. So stop resisting, okay? Stop letting your sin get in the way. He died for it. He covered it. He's ready to listen to everything that you have to say, all of your repentance. And if you go to him and say, why can't I follow you? Listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he teaches you. Open your hearts to it. Because that's how you become more like him. Okay, I'm going to just... The application of this is very simple. I don't need this anymore. There are no impersonal forces. It's not a mystery. Okay? And if you're, if you're entering into these sinful situations, you click the video closed... You do the gossip, you covet the body, the money, the job, and all these things, and you don't have that experience like looking into the face of God afterwards, you're in a very real trouble. You're living on a knife's edge. Because this is, what, this is the reality. He comes and he meets you there because he shows you, you are unforgiving, I am forgiving. You are wicked, I am not. Hey, we need, if you're experiencing a great deal of sin and you know and all it gives you is a touch of heartburn, right? You need to reach out to some Christian brothers and sisters. But don't run from it. Embrace it. Okay? Embrace your failure. That's difficult to say as a Calvinist. It's difficult to say as a pastor. It's difficult to say as a father and a husband. Right? Because we should hate our sin. It's difficult to get people to hate sin. But what I'm saying is embrace the failure and what he is going to do with it. It's an opportunity. If you don't want to go to him and you don't want to repent to him and you don't want to say what you did was sin, then what you're saying okay, is that you're not humble, that you're not weak, that you don't need him. But by going to him, what you're doing, there's an exchange there. He's got to die for you in that situation. And in that situation where he's dying for you, you're becoming more like him. Now, brothers and sisters, beloved, the Lord is good, and the Lord is big, and he is yours, and he loves you, and nothing is going to keep him from having you, nothing. And believing, by believing that is how he has you. Okay? He came in the image and likeness of man to make man in the image and likeness of God, and believing that is how he does it. 
So don't run. Don't hide. Open the heart. Open your mind. Call out to him. And he will hear you and respond. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for the life of Peter. We thank you that you were so gracious to him and so forgiving. We pray, Father, that you would enter into our lives in the same way. We know that you are near us, and we pray, Father, that you give us the strength to draw near to you. Teach us truly what it means to be discipled, to open our hearts and minds to you, to not be overcome by the wickedness that is soiling our hands every day. Let us run to Christ as Peter ran to him. Help us to see what it is that's keeping us from following you, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more every day like your son, Jesus Christ. And amen.